Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the player swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. Jim Nance, thank you for that introduction. Awesome stuff. And Jim Nance, we're going to hear a lot of his voice this coming week here at the PGA Championship, Harding Park. First major of the year, of course, going to be on CBS. ESPN jumps in the game. This is their first time having the PGA Championship in 30 years. So I know those guys are pumped for it. Of course, Andy North and, of course, Scott Van Pelt loves the game of golf. He was able to call some of the early round actions of the Masters win for Tiger 2019. He is fanatic about it so they will have it back on their site espn plus so much so many ways to follow that with feature groups so as golf fans we are very lucky to have a big week here a major championship is finally here at the pga coming up at harding park in san francisco and i have a great guest on for this week who is very familiar with the course he had been out there for the match play five years back and mark rolfing Golf Channel and NBC on-course reporter and analyst. He's been in the studio the last two years. He is on the show this week. Very good guy. And, of course, you would know that by his friendships he has with so many people in the game. And I'm talking about athletes. Michael Jordan, he's played over 100 rounds of golf in 25 years in his friendship with Michael Jordan. Of course, they have an Illinois connection, Chicago uh, is Jordan playing so many years for the Bulls. But yeah, the really cool insight. And he gets into the last dance. I mean, Jordan had invited Mark Rolfing to be at the United Center for the debut of the last dance, which is really cool to hear their friendship. There's some great stories about Jordan's game. We're going to get into that a little bit more. Charles Barkley, another guy that Mark Rolfing has spent many years with, of course, covering the Tahoe Celebrity Event, the American Century Championship, for so many years. There's a lot we can learn from that. We'll ask, uh, we'll get some Twitter questions in about whether that uh, that can be fixed, whether Charles Barkley's swing can be fixed. Other players, too. We got, uh, let's see, John Smoltz, the ba- baseball player, the pitcher from the Braves. The first time he met Mark Rolfing, they played 45 holes of golf, but they had to duke it out, had a match. So we'll get into that. Tony Romo, another big one. We get into his passion for the game, how much he loves the sport. And, of course, Mark has seen him at Tahoe many, many years covering that. Aaron Rodgers, Roger Clemens, a lot of of people we uh, discuss with Mark. And, of course, PGA Championship preview. That's, That's a big part of this, too. Kind of on the back end of this interview, we really get into what he's expecting from these players. We look at John Ron, number one player in the world. What do we expect in his first major now as number one, second week as number one, or I should say second start after playing in Memphis? And then just Thomas Bryson. There's some a lot of young guns to look forward to in terms of where they're going to be in their career. I kind of ask him to break down Rom, JT, and Bryson and who he's expecting to have more majors. Tiger Woods, of course, we got to look at his chances in the PGA Championship. Hasn't played a ton recently, but we have to ask Mark, and I did, uh, what he expects from Tiger. Of course, remember, this is a course where Tiger Woods won in 2005 in the WGC American Express Championship, 
And of course, 2009, remember that amazing three iron on the 18th that he hit and he had the perfect flip of the club after he hit it and he holds the pose. That was one of the famous shots there. He's played very well at Harding Park over the years. Now it's uh, 11 years later. How is he going to play? we got a lot of fun stuff with the PGA Championship looking ahead. We're going to talk about Fall Masters. That's one of his favorite events. Mark loves the Masters, and we have to think about the uh, conditions. We get into questions from so many different people. I think I got to five or six questions from people on Twitter, on Facebook, and I will make sure I'll get an email out so that you can email them in as well. Um, I am on Instagram, Garrett Johnston 51 on Instagram. Of course, Garrett Johnston on Facebook. And yeah, get them into me. There's a ton that we were able to get to this week. We, of course, get to Hawaii and his favorite courses there in Maui. He loves his game. And, 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 and with the game, there's so much he's learned from the cancer, salivary gland cancer he had a few years back. What? How does he look at life now since he's had the cancer with tour life, family life, just overall, and, and a lot of interesting thoughts from Mark. Of course, he's he's been through a lot with that, and you got to respect 33-year career in television. Of course, he played as a pro on many different tours, including the PGA Tour before that, but he's been at an ESPN, ABC, NBC, Golf Channel analyst. You're going to hear him and see him on Live From the Golf Channel, Live From the PGA Championship this week as well at Harding Park. So he's a tireless guy. I mean, when, when I had him on for the interview, uh, so this was a few days ago, he was up at 6.45 a.m. Hawaii time, of course, preparing for it. But he's an early bird, and he's a, he's a sharp guy. So anyway, we'll get to the interview here. Mark Rolfing from the Golf Channel and NBC. Hope you enjoy this on Beyond the Clubhouse. Well, welcome into this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. I am pumped to have my friend Mark Rolfing of NBC and Golf Channel. He's an analyst. You've seen him on TV. You've heard him calling the shots for many years, calling Tiger's rounds, Roy McIlroy's rounds on NBC Golf Channel. Uh, Mark, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. How could I be doing bad when you take a look behind me, Garrett? Just a beautiful day. The sun came up here in Maui about an hour ago, and uh, it's going to be a spectacular day, just like yesterday and just like tomorrow. The Illinois nat native getting uh, all kinds of sunshine here these last few decades over there in Hawaii, huh? Yeah, it was sort of a fluke that I ended up here. My bad place sort of took me right off the tour and uh, sent me into trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I ended up uh, coming out here on a week's vacation. I had played in the Hawaiian Open uh, uh, that year, and uh, I kind of liked Waikiki. And so I, I made a plan to come out to Waikiki, had met this a uh, young gal that I was kind of smitten with in California and said, let's go to Hawaii. And uh, basically, we came out here and have been here for four years, never left. Man, quite a story. Hey, so I wanted to start you know, beyond the clubhouse. The big thesis for me about this is the friendships, the lasting relationships we all make as golfers, whether we're playing the game or even just talking about the game at the dentist's office with friends, you know, waiting to get our hair cut. <laughs> we love the game. There's so much passion. For you, there have been some unbelievable people that you've gotten to know. And I wanted to start with Michael Jordan, MJ. Um, over 100 rounds in 25 years. What has it been like uh, getting to know Michael Jordan over this last quarter century? 
It's really been incredible. Uh, and I think I realized it more than anything else, uh, Garrett, during this Last Dance uh, series that was on uh, ESPN. Uh, we were in touch during that. I actually had talked to him right before it. He was a little bit nervous about it, wasn't exactly sure how he was going to, uh, you know, be portrayed totally in it and how people were going to react to it. But He's an incredible human being. Uh, I really enjoyed getting to know him. We played a lot of golf. I got to experience uh, that last dance actually in person uh, at the United Center in Chicago. And uh, I, I love playing golf with Michael Jordan. The only thing I can't figure out is as much as he has played and as serious as he's gotten about the game over the years, why he hasn't really gotten better than he has. Uh, I, I kind of blame it on his height. He's a tall man. It's tough for a guy that big to play. And he's got this spine angle that changes his head goes up and down. You know, you can go laterally and move your head a little bit and get away with it. But if your head goes up and down, your spine angle's changing. And, uh, and he's struggled, but nobody loves the game of golf more than Michael Jordan. That's for sure. You know, you remind me just talking about Michael Jordan. I remember going, I'm from Sacramento, California. So I would go really the closest golf tournament of any kind was the Tahoe celebrity event two hours drive up there in South Lake Tahoe I remember going there in 2006 we got of course a little bit of wind there in Hawaii we're here in the background but I remember going 2006 and seeing Tiger Woods excuse me Michael Jordan tee off on the 18th tee and I remember you were in that group I don't know if you were playing with him or if you were calling the shots but talk about what it's like to see him inside the ropes and kind of what you picked up from calling that event over the years. Well, you know, when we first started that event back in the 90s, nobody knew what to think. Uh, I remember following Bill Lane Bear the first year when he won the tournament. He ended up in a playoff. Um, I can't remember who he was playing off against. And he played that 18th hole and um, – you know, it's, it was just – it was the strangest thing. Guys weren't really playing by the rules. I'm not even sure we had full-time rules officials there. Uh, but it, it caught on pretty quickly, and it became one of my favorite events. And the day that you saw me, if I was playing with Michael, I wouldn't have been playing with him in the event. So it was probably on Wednesday. Uh, Back to stay. can't remember uh, what year it was, but sometime in the late – I would say the – well, it would have been around 93 or 94. We kind of developed a tradition where we would play 36 holes every Wednesday of Tahoe. Uh, and we'd have, you know, either four or five players, typically five players in the group. And it was kind of a standing game. Uh, probably did it for 10 years. And uh, it was always quite a scene. There was more uh, spectators following that group, really, than even any group during the tournament back in the day. Uh, when Michael was doing that, but we had a gas and there was a little bit of wagering going on, as you can imagine. I could uh, definitely imagine that with Jordan. Um, there have been many times where I've seen him show up early to that course with sunglasses on. He doesn't want you to see his eyes. You know he's been out late uh, the night before on State Line Nevada at those casinos. Uh, what are some of your really favorite moments with him on the golf course that really is, that you're going to take with you and, and just special moments? Well, what, one, one of the things that I, I'll never forget, and this, this incident occurred out in Hawaii, um, he, Michael just hates to lose at anything. And no matter what, he, he's got to win. And we were playing down on the south end of Maui in a game one day, and 
Uh, he had hit his ball out into the lava. Uh, it was fairly close to a green area, and uh, he got out in there, and they played lava through the green at the time, but if you wanted to take a drop as a lateral hazard, it was a local rule. Anyway, there was a lot of crushed lava around his ball, and he got in there, and he started hacking away at all this lava in front of the ball, behind the ball, to the side of the ball, and he's just spewing lava everywhere. And I came over and I said, hey, well, congrats, you just lost the hole. You know, you can't do that. He goes, well, yes, I can. And anyway, we started arguing about it. And we argued the whole rest of the round. Um, and and the, the match ended up kind of coming down to that one hole. So we get in the uh, restaurant afterwards and we're trying to settle the bets and we're still arguing about what he made on the 10th hole and he takes his cell phone out and hits a speed dial. And uh, it's six o'clock at night in Hawaii. And um, he starts talking to the person on the other end and said, hey, I got a problem with Mr. Rolfing out here on Maui and you know, here's what's happening and yada yada. Um, and it's Tiger Woods. He is called Tiger Woods at midnight at Firestone. Uh, to have him basically make the decision on the ruling. And um, Tiger, Tiger says, Michael, give Mark the phone. And so he gives me the phone. Tiger goes, hey, you're right. You know you're right, but you're not going to win. Give it up. I got to go back to sleep. You know, I got a 7 a.m. tea time, whatever. And that was the end of that. I gave it up and lost. I'll never forget. And it was clearly, you know, the most blatant violation I've seen Ever, maybe. <laughs> but uh, he, Mike, Michael loves to win. He hates to lose. And, well, he's making the rules in that case. Uh, what would listeners be most surprised to hear about his game and about what he's like, his personality's like on the golf course? Uh, they might be surprised to know that his short game is without a doubt his strength. He has a phenomenal short game. Uh, he's a great putter, a fantastic putter. He's got a pretty long putter because he's a tall man with a huge grip on it. It was like pulling a, uh, the butt end of a, a baseball bat for me. Uh, but he's just got tremendous feel and touch. And, and as I watched him around the hole, chipping, putting, bunker shots even, um, he did that. He played that style the way he played around the rim in basketball. Um, you know, he would do these things where he was roaring toward the basket and then had this really soft little shot that would just barely dribble over the front edge of the rim and go in. And, and that's kind of the way he putts and, and kind of the way he chips. He's got a phenomenal short game. Uh, that, that would probably surprise people. It was a really good short game. Mm. And we talk about other players that you've gotten to know, and I think of Charles Barkley. You know, how long have you known him? Of course, I'm sure a lot of connection with with the celebrity event in Tahoe. But how long does that go back? That relationship, and and what what are some of your favorite images that pop to mind with him? Okay, my favorite memory of Charles Garrett, uh, without a doubt, would be um, right after I had my cancer treatment back in 2015. It was. Uh, and I was in the hospital in Chicago, and I was watching uh, an NBA game. Let's see, it would have been in uh, would have been in August then, or no, it was wasn't in August. Uh, maybe I guess it was in the fall. Anyway, make a long story short. Um, Charles was on the set with Ernie Johnson and um, Kenny the Jet and Shaq, and um, they were talking about something. And he all of a sudden stopped and said, "Hey." I just want to give a shout out to one of the really good guys. 
uh, in the world, Mark Rolfing, you know, he's having a tough fight. I mean, and here I am, you know, an announcer for a competing network, you know, and, and not even a basketball guy, a golf guy. And it was just amazing. And the reaction to that was incredible. But I, I love Charles. He never got to play in the big Michael Jordan game with us because he just simply wasn't good enough. The, the Charles bets were always interesting, Garrett, um, because he played great in practice rounds and he would play great on the range. And we always kidded him. He ought to take a range ball out and tee off with that and see if that would help him score uh, a little bit better. Because once he gets on the course and the, and the flag goes up, he has trouble. But our standing bet with Charles, all the NBC announcers, was that he couldn't make a bogey during a round. So if you made a bogey, uh, you had you got zero points. A par got you plus one, bogey zero, and double bogey minus three. And um, we bet that Charles would make double bogey or worse on every hole. And I don't know that he ever won that bet. His score basically every day that he tried it was minus 36. He doubled every hole. Wow. What a, what a, uh, what a guy. What a personality. Um, there's a, a – I got a question on Twitter from John Kim. He's at four bros. And he says, what would you suggest to fix Barkley's game? Well, he, first of all, he's listening to too many different people. Um, I think he's, and, and he's trying, he just tries this unbelievable stuff. You know, he's tried being hypnotized. He's tried swinging one-handed. He's tried swinging left-handed. Uh, my answer to that would be, and I, and I say this to pretty much anybody that plays at the level Charles does, is go back to the fundamentals. You know, there's, there's really four key fundamentals in golf, Garrett. There's grip, there's aim, there's ball position, and there's posture. And if you are proficient in those four fundamentals, if you've got a decent grip, and if you align the ball correctly, Charles does not. He gets lined up cockeyed, way to the right, and, and he's having to kind of try to pull back and come across the line down at it to, to get at the ball. He's standing a little too close to it. I'd move a little further from it. But if he just paid a little bit of attention to those fundamentals, especially his ball position and his aim, I think it would straighten him out. But it's mostly in his head now. Um, you know, when he went on the Haney Project, that didn't really do him any favors. He got worse after that. Uh, He's just he's listening to too many people and trying too much different stuff. Is there anything uh, about him? You know, we see him on NBC and on Golf Channel during that that tournament. But is there anything about him inside the ropes, the just his energy on the golf course that would that would be kind of enlightening or surprising to us as as golf fans? You would be shocked at how pleasant he is, how cordial he is how he deals with every fan he reminds me a little bit of Arnold Palmer he will stop and talk to anybody um, if he signs an autograph he takes his time on the autograph but for somebody that's playing as poorly as he is somebody who's absolutely <laughs> chopping it around the course being ridiculed by the fans he just is an amazing guy he is a gentleman he's a very smart man I will tell you He's done a tremendous amount of charity work, even in the Tahoe area out there, because he's gotten to love that tournament so much. I really respect Charles Barkley. Um, he's an amazing human, and, and uh, it, I wish everybody could get to know him a little better, because he's much more than what you see analyzing the NBA. 
Yeah, a lot of layers to his personality. Um, so other players, other celebrities, athletes that you've gotten to know over the years, John Smoltz, what comes to mind when you think of the old pitcher from the Braves, John Smoltz? Smoltz is really good. Um, I, I, the first round that I ever played with Smoltz, I actually played with he and Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox, all three of them, uh, when they were all pitching for the Braves down in Florida. And um, we started out as a fivesome. A friend of mine had introduced me to the three, an Atlanta guy. And we started out as a fivesome. And as the day kind of wore on, Smoltz and I were developing a pretty heated heated match going. And, and that was actually the first time I had met him that day. And uh, a couple, couple of the players dropped out after 18 holes. Uh, Smoltz wanted to go more. So we played a second 18. Uh, pretty, pretty sure I was ahead. Um, and he wanted to keep going, and at about 5 o'clock at night, with the sun almost starting to go down, we went out for a final nine, just he and I. He wasn't about to quit. So we played 45 holes that first day that I ever met him. Uh, we played a lot after that. Um, and uh, I, I always marveled at Smoltz and, and uh, the relationship that he had, actually the Atlanta pitchers with Bobby Cox, their manager at the time. Um he let them play a lot of golf. And I remember Smoltz one time, we were in Vegas, and Smoltz played golf with us there uh, prior to pitching in a game in San Diego the next night. Bobby let him come over because Smoltz had convinced Bobby Cox that he played better uh, on the baseball mound after he had tired himself out physically playing golf the day before. And if he played 36 holes, he would have a good night's sleep and then pitch a good game. Sure enough, he shut the Padres out uh, the next night. But, um, uh, yeah, I love playing golf with Smoltz. He's really good. Other athletes, I think, of another pitcher, Roger Clemens. I know you've been able to play with him. What's uh, the experience like with Roger, the Rocket? You know, Clem Clemens is so big and strong. He loves the game. Um, he gets exasperated with it. Uh, it, it, it's harder for the bigger men to play. Um, and, uh, you know, but having played with NFL guys and, and hockey players out there and NBA guys, um, it's still the position players in the NFL and the hockey players that are the best. Never forget the day I met Tony Romo. It was in, it was in a Jordan match out there one day. Um, and I never knew who my partner was going to be before that Wednesday match. Michael would get there the day before me. He got there on Tuesday always. Uh, and so he would have picked his partner for the match. And then I would show up and somehow either get paired with somebody or something for the match. Aaron Rodgers was my partner one year. Um, but anyway, this one particular year, this new guy showed up, Tony Romo. And he was wandering around the putting green or something. And Jordan said, well, who are you going to take today? And I said, well, what, what are my options? He goes, well, you know, I talked to a couple guys. You know, what about, what about Romo? And I said, was well, he any good? And, um, and Jordan said, yeah, he's pretty good. I heard he's pretty good. I said, okay, I'll take Romo. So Romo and I went out there. He was my partner. He shot 67 in the first round that day. And we absolutely buried him, just smoked him. Uh, that became a 36-hole day that day, too. Uh, too. But I think of all the guys that I played with there, um, I haven't played with Mulder, but I, I think Romo probably is the best. I think technically he's, he's the best. It's interesting you talk about him being so good, being the best of that, that group. I remember hearing Jim Nance talk about in production meetings, even before – 
Tony Romo started working for, for CBS, he would bring clubs when they would talk to the, the visiting teams you know, on the Friday, they would conduct interviews and he'd have a club in his hand and he'd have, he just wants to talk about golf all the time. For you and the time you spent with Tony Romo, what is his passion like for golf and, and what really comes to mind with moments with him? He's got a tremendous passion for golf. Um, you know, he is right on the edge of, of being almost a PGA Tour quality player, but what's difficult for him to grasp uh, and for a lot of people is just how big the margin is between the greatest players in the world and somebody like, like Romo. Um, I remember hearing a story not too long ago about a player last year on the PGA tour. There was a half a shot a day uh, away from making the tour championship top 30 and a half a shot a day from losing his PGA tour card. You think about that. That's a, that's a pretty fine line. And so, I, I love Tony's passion for the game. He gets a little, uh, going a little too fast mentally. I think sometimes people, uh, you know, always accused him of that as the quarterback. He would get happy feet in there maybe or, or uh, di didn't quite stay, stay with a play as long as he might have. Um, I think he gets a little nervous and tries to make things happen a little too much on the golf course and if he would just slow down and gear back a little and let things happen he he is really good solid player unfortunately was injured this year there in tahoe had the wrist injury but you did mention another funny celebrity uh that, that loves being out there and also at the pebble beach uh, pro-am aaron Rodgers. you spent some time with him i think he, he, to me, he's very, um, he doesn't mind laughing at himself when he's out there. I think it's very disarming. I think there's something about being on the golf course away from the hot, big lights of Lambeau Field, which you see as golf fans, you see a different version of the guy. He's just so much more laid back. What, what do you make of Aaron Rodgers and, and the time you spent with him as a golfer? Well, you know, he, he's not as good as a Romo or not even as good as a Michael Jordan. I don't know. I would suspect that Aaron's probably a 10 handicap or something like that, maybe. Yeah, he gives you that appearance on the outside, but he gets frustrated, too. I think for the most part, the thing about all these athletes is they can't believe that they're not better at golf. You know, they think, oh, I'm so good at what I do. Golf can't be that hard ball's not moving it's just sitting there all I gotta do is hit it uh and it's got to be very frustrating for most of those guys to be really good in one game and then not be able to play another game at all and I think Aaron's response you know to uh kind of some of the things that he does on the golf course is simply to laugh at himself because frankly there's a lot of other people laughing too <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Uh, well, let's segue now, as we talked about some of your friendships, relationships from the game, segue a little bit into some current topics. Of course, we've got the PGA Championship coming up. But before we get to previewing the PGA, I did get a question from at Barney Rodwell on Twitter. And he had said, knowing that you were coming on the podcast, what's your thought on distance off the tee on the PGA Tour right now? Does it need to be throttled back? Well, you know, I, I think distance is an issue. It's becoming more of an issue. Um, and there's a couple, couple of ways to look at it. Um, you can either change 15,000 championship golf holes and spend billions of dollars doing that, or you can change one golf ball. Um, the issue is I don't see that golf ball change happening. I really don't. Uh, I'm starting to move Garrett toward bifurcation. I think there should be different sets of rules when it comes to equipment. Uh, for the best players in the world, not necessarily the rules of the game itself, but the equipment rules for sure. 
Uh, if you look at NFL, for example, a, a football is not the same size when a person is playing high school football as it is college football or the NFL because hands get bigger as kids grow up. Uh, so I think maybe bifurcation is really the only uh, answer to it, but I think, frankly, it's gone too far uh, to change. And, and I also think um, it's not as important as we're hearing. You know, it's such a big deal for 0.1 millionth percent of the players in the world, and that's the PGA Tour players. I have not had an amateur golfer tell me recently that they're quitting the game because they hit the ball too far. I haven't heard anybody complaining that they're hitting it too far. It's just not an issue for them. So I think we're maybe making a little too much out of it. Now, it's going to be a good a good uh, chance to really take a look at what the PGA of America decides to do at Harding Park next week. Harding Park is not a long golf course. Uh, you know, they haven't played a major championship in a while, so the players, you know, I, I really think are, are going to be in an unusual position. There won't be any fans, which is going to make it strange anyway. But they're going to see some really high rough, I think higher rough than what they're used to uh, for a normal PGA championship. Usually that's a little bit more fun as a major, and you see some better scoring and more action in the PGA maybe than the other three. Uh, but I don't think that's going to be the case at Harding Park. I think you're going to see the course squeezed in and tightened up, and I think that's something they feel like they probably have to do because there's no length to be had there. So with the course that's squeezed in and tightened up, as we look to the PGA Championship, Harding Park, what kind of player then would that tend to favor? Is it going to be a balance of some of the bombers who are in form right now and some of the guys that are more strategic off the tee? I'm looking more at a player. Webb Simpson is a huge favorite of mine. Uh, he, he just when, when I look at Harding Park and think about it, um, it's got his name written all over it. Um, it's going to take a player that has to play with this discipline. Is Phil Mickelson going to play well at Harding Park? I don't think so. Uh, Harding Park is going to play a lot like Le Golf National did in the Ryder Cup in Paris, in that it is going to be set up and dictate to the players a strategy that they have to use in order to be successful there. And in Paris at the Ryder Cup, most of the American players just simply refused to do it and refused to play the course the way it was it was presented to them, and, and they got shellacked. Um, so next week, you're going to have to be a disciplined, straight driver. Um, and a guy like Simpson, I absolutely love. Uh, you know, he won the U.S. Open not very far from there. He could hit a golf ball between those two courses. Uh, I, I think he is probably the most underrated player in the game, if not the history of the game almost. Nobody ever mentions Webb Simpson when it comes to listing favorites for tournaments. But um, – he would be a favorite of mine. Another guy that not very many people are talking about is Adam Scott. Um, he hasn't played in a long time, so there may be some uncertainty there, but he is that disciplined kind of player, tremendous ball striker. I don't think there'll be quite as much a premium on putting next week as you see in some other major championships. Uh, so I, I like him. Um, and, I, and I like it with tougher conditions, a gritty kind of tougher player that has that discipline and is a great putter. And, and the guy that comes to mind for me is Tyrrell Hatton. I would not be surprised to see Tyrrell Hatton contend next week. Yeah. And when we've seen Tyrrell, I know you have in calling action at different events. I remember, he had a big run at the Honda Classic a couple years back. Um, this guy, even though we haven't seen him a ton in the States, of course, winning Bay Hill earlier this this year but even though american fans haven't seen him as much this guy really has 
some experience in final groups in late groupings in, in, in tough events. As I mentioned, Bay Hill, as I mentioned, Honda classic uh, from 2017. When I look at John Rahm, I know that you've, you've been very strong with him in terms of a guy that you think is going to break through and win a major soon. Now that he's number one in the world, he's just got there. You'd imagine he's more confident. What do you think, what do you expect from him now that he's at the top of the world rankings and brings that into this first major of the year? Well, Rom is a threat every week, uh, whether he's world number one or not. Um, he, he's got a great chance this week. Don Rom hits the ball so high you can't even believe it. Uh, I like him in major championship conditions. I wonder why uh, he hasn't done better, and I'll answer my own wondering by saying I, I don't know mentally like he has been prepared to be able to win a major championship yet. I think he is starting to get there now. You think about the majors, Garrett, uh, you have more bad breaks. They're more emotional experiences. There's lots of ups and downs. Uh, and you like to have a steady, even-keeled kind of Webb Simpson player or Jim Furyk player, uh, as opposed to Rom, who can be a little bit volatile. Uh, but he's got it more under control now. Uh, I think he will do well. Having said that, I, I don't think in today's world you're going to see any player dominate the world rankings anymore. I think those days are over. Uh, there's just too many good players out there. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to win to win the majors. And, you know, there was a time at the beginning of my career I might have said there were a dozen players that could win a PGA championship. And now there's probably 72 players that could win the PGA next week. So um, it's getting harder and harder to win those championships. It is, yeah. And when you mentioned your, your beginning of your career, you've been at it for 33 years, uh, calling golf shots, being on the course. I also think of other players. I mentioned John Rahm. I mentioned now JT and Bryson. So those three young guns under the age of 30 with so much promise. When you look at them, who do you think will end up with most majors? I think it's going to be Thomas. Um, I really am a huge Thomas fan. I like everything about his game. Uh, you know, people were worried about him early in his career, uh, not so much by what he was doing, but because Jordan Spieth, uh, who they kind of came up together, Jordan became this instant stu superstar. He became a marketing uh, dream, uh, and he just he got better and had better results much faster than Thomas. But Thomas has been on this steady incline. He has gotten better and better. If you take a look at his stats, he gets better every year in almost every aspect of his game. Uh, I, I just I love the way he drives the ball, uh, the power he generates by using the ground and launching himself off the ground to get the power is amazing. He's a tremendous iron player. Uh, and he has become a clutch putter. He wasn't as good a putter early in his career, I don't think, as he is now. He's become a great putter. I also really like the little team that he's got with him. I think he's got a very simple cocoon compared to some of these other players, certainly compared to DeChambeau. Um, you know, he's got his dad, and he's got Jimmy Johnson, basically. Um, Dad's been his only coach. Um, you know, Jimmy as the caddy is a real rock and a tremendous influence on him and has helped him in a number of situations. I, I think Jimmy Johnson saved him uh, a win here at Kapalua not too many years ago when Hideki Masayama was chasing him down and uh, 
and Jimmy's just done a tremendous job with, with JT. So if I look at those three, I'm going to say Thomas will end up with, with the most major. I can't not ask you about Tiger Woods. And, uh, of course, as we looked at the PJ Championship, he's won there in 05. He's played, got some great visuals of that course. He's, he played so well at the President's Cup in 09, which you're very familiar with when it was at Harding Park. What do you make of his outlook right now to contend this coming week? I know he's only played one tournament proper in the last five-plus months since Riviera. I, you know, I, I have to wonder just, you know, what his chance would be to win a major championship having played as little as he has. But yet, uh, Tiger never ceases to amaze me. Uh, I really believe the whole key for Tiger next week is going to be his putting. Um, I think if anything has declined in Tiger's game over time, he played the greatest golf that I had ever seen um, in the year 2000. I, I mean, I played, watched him play. I can't imagine how many rounds it was the summer of 2000. And I never saw him miss an eight-footer. I don't know if he missed an eight-footer the whole summer. Uh, he was just a phenomenal putter. And I think in today's game, um, where, where Tiger is having a little bit of trouble is saving rounds. He can still shoot low rounds. Uh, I don't think his club head speed is as high as it was uh, when he first made the comeback. And so probably his ball striking is a little more limited. That's, I'm sure, due to back injuries and just age in general. Uh, but I think the key is going to be for Tiger is going to be his putting. Because what Tiger was really good at, everybody always marveled at his 64s and 65s that he consistently put up there. But what I remember about Tiger more than anything is how he could turn a 74 into a 68 or 69 better than anybody, uh, simply because he was just such a great putter. Uh, that's going to be the key next week. I also think the weather is going to be the key. I think if it's cold, damp, uh, and, and the way San Francisco could be in the summertime, I don't think that's going to be good for Tiger. He needs to have some sunshine and get the air moving a little bit and, and have a nice warm situation. He's rooting for some warmer weather next week. With Tiger Woods, uh, I know my listeners and all golf fans who have heard of what you've done over your career and think about all the thousands of shots that you've been able to walk and, and watch with Tiger Woods and call on the air – I mean, people would die for some of that experience that you've had. Amazing stuff. Um, when you think – you mentioned even in 2000 how well he played. What are a couple really good memories from your on-course reporting, walking with one of the greatest players ever that come to mind for you, Mark? Well, I, you know, I remember a number of them, Garrett. Um, lately, I've been remembering the better-than-most putt. Um, if you watch the putt at the players on 17 that Tiger hit, the only voice you hear on the call is Gary Cope. Uh, and he, of course, now probably has registered better than most and who knows could be getting rich off it. But that's because the tape doesn't start until Tiger actually hits the putt. You, you, you come to it and you see Tiger hitting the putt. But for about, I would say, 30 seconds at least, maybe more than that, prior to that, I was with that group as the on-course commentator, and I was trying to read the putt and describe what he was faced and with and everything else, and I didn't think it was a putt. I thought he had way more chance to three-putt it than make it. I thought he could actually putt it off the green, and it might have gone off the green had it not hit the hole. Uh, so I remember that one. Um, but I think of all the performances for Tiger, certainly Pebble Beach was unbelievable in 2000 at that U.S. Open, but 
I really think Torrey Pines is the one that I remember more than anything. Uh, when he won that U.S. Open, I was actually staying in a room next to him there at the lodge in San Diego. And so I knew uh, the parade of doctors that were coming in and out. I knew what his physical situation was. And I'll never forget it. I swear, Garrett, I could hear his knee when I was walking close to him. I just can't imagine um, what he was going through from a pain standpoint. Uh, but just watching how he was able to change the way he played and, and uh, somehow gutted out to win that thing, uh, it's just amazing. That, that, to me, was maybe the best performance of his career. Yeah, I, I got to say, I think 2019 Masters, we're going to really remember as one of the great moments in our sport. But 2008 U.S. Open, I would argue – that that was one of the finest moments, one of his finest moments ever, just, just coming through like that. And to me, I think about what you did that week. So what was it like being in the lodge of Torrey Pines right next to him? Did you ever see him, you know, coming back from around? Like, did you ever see him in the evening and get to chat with him briefly? You know, not, not, not a whole lot. Uh, you know, Tiger and I have developed a pretty good relationship over the years. He and I are partners in this golf course project that we're doing in Chicago now with President Obama at a public course there, Jackson Park. And so we've always gotten along quite well. I've had my moments with Tiger just like, like everybody else. Uh, but I've kind of gotten to know him pretty well. I know what makes him tick. Uh, and he's an amazing guy. And I, I just am so thrilled um, at how he has changed as a person and how he has viewed the world around him really in the last few years. Um, I think he has totally changed his approach to the game in that he now understands how important he is to the game. And I think he appreciates so much more, not necessarily what he's doing for himself to make himself happy. His dad's not around anymore. I know he wishes his dad could have seen this comeback, but uh, for his kids and for the fans, he is now getting pleasure out of, the enjoyment that he brings to the fans watching him play. I think that's the biggest change I've seen in Tiger. And I think it's a really, a really cool change. I, I'd love to see how he's evolved as a person in that regard. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned your closeness to Tiger over these years or gotten to know him so well. What about his personality? It, it's kind of uh, gives you a laugh the most. Is there, is there a moment that comes to mind about uh, something he did behind the scenes or? I can all, I'll tell you, I always knew what condition I was going to be in with an interview with Tiger by looking at his face when he was walking toward me. Uh, and the most important thing was whether or not I could see his teeth. Tiger's got some phenomenal teeth. He should be a spokesman for the American Dental Association. He's just got the greatest smile. Um, but I always know that as I'm watching Tiger come walking over to where he's going to be in an interview situation with me, if I can see his teeth, if that smile is shining, I know I'm okay. But when the lips are totally pursed and I don't see the smile, I know I'm in a little trouble. Now, never forget, after, um, after I think it was the third round at uh, Olympia Fields in Chicago in 2003 U.S. Open, Tiger had shot 75. I think he was a shot out of the lead going to the third round, shot 75, played horrible. And I had to interview him after the round. And I was thinking, oh, my heavens, you know, what, what is the first question that I'm going to ask him? And the first question to Tiger is the most important one by far. You've got to start an interview 
off on the right track. Um, Jimmy Roberts, you know, learned a lesson from that at Bay Hill one year when he didn't really start with the best first question. Tiger didn't like it. So I said to Tiger, is there anything positive that you can take out of today's round? And his answer was, well, yeah, I broke 80. And I saw his teeth. And I knew as soon as he did that, I was okay. And so then my next question was, well, okay, what went wrong? He said, what went wrong? You watched it. My caddy did a terrible job. I couldn't set up to the ball. I was having problems with my grip. I couldn't do this. I, I mean, and he just went through this litany of everything that he had done wrong. It was hysterical. Where do you want to but start, I think if right? I would have asked him the first question, what went wrong today? I'm not sure he would have reacted like that. And I wouldn't have known whether or not I could actually go there. Right. You wouldn't have known if you could have gone in that direction at that, if he would have been okay with that. Understandably, he was defending champion of the going into that U S open, having won at Beth page in 02. So there's so much expected from the broadcast teams who are broadcasting these events to get to tiger and, and get that initial uh, response. When I talk about broadcast teams and the U S open, of course, NBC gets the rights again to the USGA, and I see a smile on your face as I say that. What our national championship, and of course, the amateur events and senior open, women's open, all of them, the whole package. How pumped are you for it? And what have your interactions been like with Malt B and Dan Hicks since you guys heard the news? Like, has there been texts back and forth? What was that like? Yeah, well, I'm out here in the ocean, in the middle of the ocean, 2,500 miles away from the nearest point of land, so I'm a little distant from all them, but I've talked to them all. Everybody's totally stoked. I have to tell you, I've got a history of disappointment uh, with the U.S. Open. Uh, you know, I, I, interestingly enough, my first network job was NBC, and I worked at NBC from 88 until 91. And I left NBC for ABC after the Ryder Cup at Kiowa Island in 91. And one of the reasons that I went to ABC was because of the U.S. Open package. Well, one year into me being at the uh, network that had the U.S. Open, they lost it. And so ABC lost it to NBC. And uh, I'll never forget, I went to Shinnecock in 95. I, I announced it on 80, uh, 94 at Oakmont um, and covered that three-man playoff with Els and uh, Roberts and uh, Montgomery. It was phenomenal U.S. Open. Uh, and then lost it, and I was so heartbroken. I went to Shinnecock, and I was in tears there, just thinking I'll never broadcast the U.S. Open again. Well, uh, NBC gets the U.S. Open, and it, later in that decade, I went back to NBC uh, and started working at NBC again, so I got the U.S. Open. But then, sure enough, after some time back at NBC, we lost the U.S. Open to Fox, so I went through you know, the disappointment again of losing the U.S. Open, uh, which is certainly one of my favorite golf tournaments. And um, and now we've got it back, and it's in the right place. I think Fox um, did an admirable job. It was, I think, a very difficult task for them, not really being in the golf business day in and day out and having a lot of golf tournaments. Uh, I think it belongs on NBC, and I think the U.S. Open, Garrett, is going to change. Um, I think it's starting to get back to its roots a little bit. Uh, there was a stretch there where it kind of got away from its personality. It kind of got away from uh, being a really tough, grinding national championship type test. Uh, and the USGA was experimenting with other venues and going to public courses and taking chances on places like Chambers Bay and Aaron Hills. Um, US Open belongs at places like Wingfoot and Pebble Beach and Shinnecock. 
uh, and that's where it should go. And uh, where it might have been the most important tournament of the world decades ago, you know, it, it's not anymore. Uh, I, I think the Masters is probably the greatest golf tournament in the world. I think the Ryder Cup's become the most compelling event in golf. But you look at the Open Championship, you know, where does the U.S. Open fall? Um, I think it's below that at this point in terms of prestige and importance in the game, but I think it's working its way back up. And I think NBC will definitely help get it there. Well, you've always said that each major championship has its own character, its own personality. Um, the open championship kind of being the world championship, if you will. When you look at the masters, I know it's one of your favorites, gotta be up there. Totally. One of your favorites. A fall Masters this year, I got a question for, on Twitter from at Brandon Bessie, and he said, how different for you, Mark, do you think will a Masters in the fall play compared to the spring? Well, the biggest difference, without a doubt, is going to be, Brandon, if there are no patrons there. I, I just simply cannot imagine the atmosphere at Augusta if there were no patrons. That is such a part of the Masters. And Augusta National is one of the most beautiful golf courses in the world. It's just a phenomenal experience. But the visuals are nothing compared to the sounds, in my mind. And uh, I, I think the Masters is going to be really, really different if there are limited patrons or if there were, for heavens, uh, heaven forbid, to have no patrons. Um, the course will play a little different, I suppose. I, yeah, play a little bit longer, maybe. It could be a little bit cooler. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, the players are going to be so jacked up to get to the Masters. I, I, it'll be a great Masters no matter what. Uh, but I think the, the big thing as to what, what the atmosphere is going to be like is whether or not there's patrons and how many there are. Yeah, I agree with you there. I want to do a quick rapid fire with you on some of your favorites. Favorite movie of all time for Mark Warfing. The last one I watched. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I just, it seems like every time I watch a movie, especially a classic, I watched Animal House the other night. Uh, I don't know. I would say if I had to pick one movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. The music in that I think is really good too. It really transports you to, to um, that time in history too. Uh, what about favorite actor? Uh, favorite actor, Bill Murray. You know, yeah, he's the guy that's on my list. I've actually played played some golf with Bill and uh, got to know him over the years. And when I look at at the different roles that he's played and some of the things that he's done, I, I just absolutely adore Caddyshack. Um, I, I would say Bill Murray. You guys have the Chicago connection there too. Uh, favorite musician? Favorite musician? Jimmy Buffett. That's a good one. Uh, what about the best moment you've had with family on the golf course. I know your wife, Debbie and your son, what really comes to mind? Um, probably not so much on the golf course playing because, um, you know, that the family wasn't as much a part of my life when I was playing competitively, but now in the television, uh, the greatest time for me, I think is when BJ, the nine year old gets to come up to the booth, um, but I, I would say my favorite move, uh, moment on the golf course was at Hazeltine, Saturday afternoon, Ryder Cup match. I'm out there with Spieth and Reed. Uh, 
playing. We're on the 16th hole of par five, and, and BJ, the nine-year-old that week, had a pair of red, white, and blue Stars and Stripes boots. Uh, and we had a little hospitality tent right at the corner of the 16th hole, and somehow he snuck out under the ropes and ran out into the middle of the fairway while I was standing out there live on TV with Spieth and uh, Reed and came right out to us and kind of gave me a little hug on my leg and like nobody stopped him and it was the middle of the Ryder Cup. I'll never forget it as long as I love. It was fantastic. He became famous that day. Of course. Uh, well, done with the rapid fire there. I wanted to get you, I talked, asked you about family a little bit. Frank LaRosa, a friend of mine from Sacramento, California, big golfer, on Facebook asked how your bout with cancer, Mark, affected your approach to work on tour and also, more importantly, your life and family. That bout with cancer, Frank, has been probably the most important thing that happened to me in my life. Uh, it changed my whole life dramatically. Uh, gave me an entirely new perspective on life. Um, it showed me that hope is everything. Uh, and, and it's something that I would carry forward every day now. And I deal with a lot of people that are battling cancer. And uh, my message is always hope. There's always hope. And there's hope in in everything about our lives, whether it's, um, you know, racial injustices or pandemics, uh, there's got there's to gotta be hope. It's such an important factor. I think cancer more than anything else when it comes to work made me more definitive in my thought process. I think it made me a better analyst. I don't think I say as much now as I did before. Maybe I've become more efficient, more definitive in my thoughts. Uh, and in some ways, maybe more, more confident. Uh, I feel like, uh, you know, I've changed as, as an analyst. And, and I, I definitely am more aggressive now than I was prior to that. I didn't do a lot of studio stuff prior to my cancer. It's really only been the last four or five years that I've been in the studio a lot for the Golf Channel. But uh, that bout with cancer really prepared me for that. There's no question. Yeah, I remember you being on that temporary studio there in Bay Hill, uh, 2016. Uh, you were out there that week in Orlando. Um, I want to finish up with some brief range questions. Get your advice as a former pro for us amateur weekend hacks. Uh, a lot of us recreational golfers, you've said in the past, we don't hit the ball whole high. How can we work on that with our range warm-up before the round? Well, yeah, you, you have to go into any range warm-up with a purpose. Um, I, you know, I really ha am a firm believer that trying to technically figure anything out before a round is a mistake. Uh, I think that's one of the issues, for example, that Jordan Spieth has faced the last couple of years as, as he struggled. Um, I see him with training devices and, and instructors and doing things, you know, pretty close to tee times in major championship rounds. And I sort of don't like that. To me, there's a time and place. And so if you're trying to work on your game, uh, you know, and really make changes, don't do it before you're playing a round of golf. Play a round of golf, uh, your warm-up should do two things. It should get you warmed up, first of all, and you should go through a routine that gets you as limber and loose and ready to play as possible. Uh, but also mentally, you know, it gets you set for um, actually going out to play golf. Um, for example, one of the things that here in Hawaii, this this place is way 
way more extreme than any place. But I tell people all the time, if you're warming up for a round in Hawaii and you go to the driving range and hit all of your shots off a completely flat lie on the range with a, with a perfect lie, you're not going to have a lie like that the entire round. And what you should do is go to the front of the practice tee or the side of the practice tee and hit a couple of balls off side hills lies. Try to emulate situations that you're going to be in during that round and, and understand what you need to do to be as successful and have as enjoyable a round as possible. But don't, don't work technically on things before you actually tee off in a round. How long should we take if we're coming from the office, we're coming from a friend's house, what have you, how long should we take um, to, to warm up and, and to make sure we're getting our putts in and getting all aspects of the game ready? Yeah, we never have enough time, it seems like, and I'm notorious. I, I always get to the course late. Um, the last thing that you want to do is feel rushed. So try and determine the amount of time that you should spend that causes you to not feel rushed. I, I think 45, 50 minutes, which is what the PJ Tour players might typically do on a range, is a little too much for the average player. I think a half an hour is plenty. Uh, and just be careful about what you're doing. Like, if you go out there and you decide you're going to blast a couple of drivers right away, you, let's say you got two minutes, you're rushing, you get the clubs out of the trunk, you're running the tee, you're late, and you go out and you try and smash a couple drivers, who knows, you could injure yourself pretty easily. I don't think you're going to accomplish anything there. Uh, same thing with putting. <laughs> you know, a lot of people will take three balls out of the bag, run over the putting green, put them down, have three five-footers, miss them all, you know, lose your confidence, you know, and then go running over to tee off. I don't like that either. Uh, if you're short on time, I, I like chipping, you know, doing some things to try and create a little bit of feel. Uh, but just do whatever you can to get your mind settled so you don't feel like you're rushed. Um, and just figure out how you're going to get the ball in play off that first tee somehow. So you mentioned chipping. What would you get into with that? Would you use a couple of different wedges, feel the bump and run, feel different kinds of shots, or what are you going to get with your tempo? Yeah, that, that, I, that, that's exactly what you want to do is get feel. Um, it depends. If you're a go-to sand wedge guy, like Tom Watson was, who chipped with a sand wedge, you know, pretty much in every situation. Michael Thompson, who won last week, is pretty much the same way. He uses a lofted club on all his chipping at 58 degrees. Uh, you don't need to change clubs. Uh, but if you like using less lofted clubs in certain situations, uh, but I would go to a green. I would put a couple of balls down. The first thing I would do is try to determine what my strategy is going to be if you're just off the green, because most amateur players are going to miss most of the greens in a round of golf. My philosophy is this. If you're off the green and you can putt it, you should always putt it. Uh, if you can chip the ball, get the ball. A chip shot rolls on the green longer than it spends time in the air. If you can chip it, chip it. Uh, <coughs> the only time you should ever flop a shot is if you have to go over something. Yeah, if you got to clear something, definitely. I got one more question from a fan. Deb Robertson, who is from San Francisco. She lives close. She loves Harding Park. She wanted to ask you about Hawaii because you're Mr. Hawaii, Mark. Um, she says, on Maui, Deborah is saying, uh, where is the best place to play around the golf and spy on the whales at the same time? Well, first of all, Deborah, you got to come a certain time of the year for the whales. So don't come this time of the year because the whales are in Alaska. <laughs> uh, you got to come between November and April for the whales. Um, and that's a good time to, 
to be here anyway. Plantation course is the best course in Hawaii. It's where the Century Tournament of Champions is played every year. It's got spectacular views. If you only got one round on Maui, I would play the plantation course. Having said that, there's no island in Hawaii that's got greater diversity when it comes to golf courses than Maui. And because of the nature of the island and the slope and the terrain and the different climates, within half an hour, you can experience totally different styles of golf courses. So I would say if you can, play three or four rounds of golf here. Uh, I love Wiley. Wiley, it's down on the arid south side of the island. I love the gold course. And uh, if you get a flair for it, play Waihu. The Muni course costs you 50 bucks. Uh, it's over on the north side. It's got four or five ocean front holes. It's a really cool spot. Great stuff. Well, hey, thanks for engaging with uh, my followers here and, and listeners. And thanks for spending some time uh, here on the podcast on Beyond the Clubhouse, Mark. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me, Garrett. All right. Well, my thanks again to my guest, Mark Rolfing from the Golf Channel, NBC analyst and course reporter. Really thought that was some fun stuff, didn't you think? Uh, I thought especially the Tiger Woods comment from that 2003 U.S. Open. He was the on-course reporter, right? Tiger's defending champion U.S. Open. And you had to ask him questions after the 75. How do you start it? <laughs> How does the interview go? And Mark, very lucky uh, to come up with a good first question. And, of course, as he always says, he sees he saw the teeth from Tiger, which, which is the big key. You want to see him smiling. And I thought that was just a really fun anecdote. I hope you enjoyed that, too, uh, from the interview. And, yeah, looking ahead, I mean, we've got so much for him to look forward to. He's got the U.S. Open back on NBC, Golf Channel, so he'll be at some of those USGA events. Of course, Wingfoot next month. So there's a lot going on, and uh, Mark is a huge part of it. Of course, we're going to see him this week on Live from the PGA Championship at Harding Park. He's going to be on the ground, a huge part of that coverage. It just shows you what he's been doing. One of the few people that's been able to be on Golf Channel and NBC, kind of doing the crossover, the two-step, and uh, just a a very visible part of of their coverage uh, throughout the week. Whether they have the rights to that tournament or not, I mean, he's at the Masters all the time, so we're going to see him, I imagine, again in the fall as well uh, for the Masters. But again, thanks to Mark. Really (laughs) good guy, and uh, I love those stories of Michael Jordan. How can you not, right? enjoy what he said about Charles Barkley as well and Tony Romo and just getting to the heart of of what these guys how much they love the game and their passion for it the shared passion for the game of course nothing like a couple side bets in there too right it's got to go with it but I loved his tips as well on the range I thought that was very helpful when he's talking about chipping getting to your tempo really focusing on that as we get ready to to play our round of golf Um, but anyway love the questions thanks for chiming in of course Facebook Garrett Johnston, you can find me there. Garrett underscore Johnston 51 on Instagram. So get questions in too. I'd love to keep this going. I love love your comments. And then, of course, on Twitter, at Johnston Garrett. Let's, uh, I think I got to five or six questions uh, from you listeners. And I really love, I love the interaction. I love that, that in this case, Mark called you by name a lot of times when he answered your question. I think it's very, very important to, uh, get that interaction and i really enjoy it and uh, let's keep this up and look forward to this next upcoming episode of beyond the clubhouse and we'll talk to you again soon